Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 133, Germans in the Belfry. Today marks the close of this season's first miniseries, and the last time we bounce around European nations for a little while. I do hope you've enjoyed these relatively small snapshots of how the Great Depression affected the politics and daily lives of these countries, and how the crisis affected so many places outside of the U.S., my coverage of the Depression and its effects is far from over, but after this week, you can expect topics that stick to one spot for a while. But for this week, we're checking in on Poland and Czechoslovakia, both nations of vital importance for this entire podcast. In the case of Czechoslovakia, it was, of course, the nation which fell prey early to the ambitions of Adolf Hitler and had the unfortunate fate of winding up as an international plaything before being unceremoniously carved up. Poland you know already as the place where World War II properly began and the first nation to fight the Nazis. Both nations during the interwar era were newly formed, with plenty of ethnic groups resenting being lumped in with them. The presence of large German minorities in both would especially have dire consequences. As a result, both nations maintained strong militaries and eyed the prospect of revising the Versailles Order with suspicion and fear which their primary benefactor, France, did its best to play up in trying to use them as checks to Germany in the East. It is important to note, though, that the two nations were not friends. There was a border dispute between them over an area the Czechs controlled and the Poles claimed was theirs by virtue of ethnic Poles being the largest group of people living there. The area had just a little over 200,000 people and was around 500 square miles, so nothing earth-shattering, just another speck on a map that would be puzzlingly insignificant to an outsider. Despite that, it was a region rich in coal, and the Poles thought they were in the right. As a result, the two did not cooperate, despite their interests otherwise converging very nicely. It would be, in fact, such a sticking point that Poland would turn against its neighbor by the end of the decade. Just another small tragedy in a story full of them that could have been avoided had either party just let the issue go. So, despite their stories being somewhat similar, they are definitely separate. When I touched on Czechoslovakia last season, I recall being uncharacteristically upbeat. That nation had managed to preserve democratic politics and maintain a prosperous industrial economy in a region sorely lacking in both of those things. Uh, well, matters could be better, of course. The Czechs maintained a stranglehold on the national leadership and the junior partner Slovaks in the eastern half of the country felt they were saddled with a state that wasn't the one they were sold on. The Germans to the West still struggled to reconcile themselves with, to their new nation, and their cooperation rested on a baseline of material prosperity. The Hungarians in the East were irreconcilable, but their motherland was in such a state that they couldn't do more than dream of breaking away. Finally, the ethnic Hungarians in the Far East were mostly left alone in their Carpathian homes. It was, in all honesty, a rickety ship held together by the fact that the Czech portion of the country was wealthy and economically advanced, and therefore able to dominate the rest of the country. That economic success, though, depended on Sudeten Germans that lived in the arc of territory that formed the nation's western borders. The real estate that they lived on held much of the country's mineral wealth and was host to much of their industrial facilities. The well-being of the entire Czech project was dependent on a productive, working relationship between the two ethnic groups. Not a partnership, mind you. The Germans did not feel themselves part of the community the Czechs had set up, while the Czechs themselves were sensitive to any challenges to their political dominance. 
Keep in mind that for many Czech leaders, the national project had only just gotten started and was still vulnerable. The only ones truly interested in building a long-lasting Czech homeland were the Czechs themselves. To truly share power with disinterested or maybe even hostile minorities seemed to be a bad idea. And while the Sudeten Germans were at first willing to play ball as the glaring eye of the international powers kept them from joining the larger German states, that cooperation only went so far. I mentioned the nation's economic success as being vital to keeping it functioning, and you better believe that when the Depression hit, that it threw a wrench into the entire arrangement. But even before the crisis, there was low-level resentment coming from the Germans. Again, they did not identify with the state, seeing themselves as Austrians now living in a foreign land. The Czechs, for their part, viewed the Germans as arrogant and domineering, failing to understand that they didn't set the terms of rule any longer. There was resentment during the 20s at the perception of the central government favoring Czech businesses over German ones when it came to assistance during the peacetime recovery. This was not helped at all when the Depression finally came at the end of the decade. Foreign trade dried up, which was devastating to Czech industry, because no matter how prosperous Czechoslovakia was in comparison to the larger region, the sheer size of its industries meant that it had to rely on exports. Keep in mind that the industries of the country had been built up not just to serve the needs of its present geographic area, but to serve an entire imperial network during the days of the Habsburgs. A small successor state of that empire wasn't going to keep its enterprises afloat. It had to export. The double whammy of buyers no longer having money and tariffs being thrown up to block foreign imports meant the economy entered that familiar freefall. Except I'm happy to report that it wasn't as bad as elsewhere, with the overall unemployment rate only reaching 11%, compared to 20 or more that was the norm elsewhere. The bad news, though, was that unemployment in the specifically German areas reached that normal 20% by 1931, making the Germans a disproportionate part of the unemployed population. A German worker was twice as likely to be unemployed as a Czech one, and this is where the problems really started. Not wanting to rely on a government in Prague that they saw as relishing in their misfortune, the Sudeten Germans looked to their fellows in Austria and Germany proper for a path forward. Already, the community had strong ties across the borders with both states. The Germans of all three nations maintained contact, both political and commercial, with their counterparts. Sudeten Germans would get their news from outside Czechoslovakia, and even before the rise of the Nazis, German media lambasted the Czech government and urged the Sudeten Germans to work towards joining with their fellows elsewhere. Austria played host to 400,000 Sudeten Germans, and Germany itself to a quarter million, these being people who had not reconciled themselves to the idea of being part of the new Czechoslovakia and who had decided to leave. These communities abroad didn't break contact from back home either. Instead, they helped organize their fellows who remained behind against being subsumed by their Slavic rulers. The tenets of the Heimwehr that I covered a few weeks ago, and eventually that of the Nazis, were exported to the Sudetenland. The mood of that region began to darken greatly, and displays of hostile German nationalism became commonplace. This didn't go unnoticed, and the Czechs were sensitive to this, and already in 1927 they had passed strict laws prohibiting anyone questioning the cohesion of the Czechoslovak state. Anyone violating the laws could expect prison time. Enforcement, though, became difficult after 1929, when the German communities increasingly closed themselves off from the Czechs. 
They gave government officials and cops the cold shoulder, basically. The early 30s saw the rise of Nazi-sponsored sports and athletic groups that acted as fronts for recruiting proper Nazis. The militant SA, a.k.a. the Brown Shirts, started setting up satellite groups in the Sudetenland. Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda chief, even made an appearance in Prague before the German university there, advocating that the Sudeten Germans join the larger National Socialist movement. Rising membership in the Nazi front organizations led to the far right among the Sudeten Germans getting bolder, with increasing instances of street marches and even music concerts being held, all advocating for the Sudetenland to break away. Finally, the authorities stepped in during September 1932 and arrested a number of Nazi leaders in the town of Brno. While there had been no dramatic inciting event, the prosecution cleanly laid out that the tactics of the Nazis were clearly leading towards the Czechoslovak state being disassembled. The accused were found guilty and issued prison sentences, with additional Nazi leaders getting rounded up and sentenced themselves afterwards. Just a few months later, at the end of January 1933, the situation became more complex, and not to the advantage of the Czechs. Adolf Hitler became Chancellor in Germany, and his support of the Sudetenland breaking away caused relations between the two countries to basically go on ice. Economic ties were frozen in March, as each nation forbid the transfer of money to the other. On June 9th, a state of emergency was declared, and 42 Sudeten Nazis were immediately arrested for attending party meetings across the border. Being a member of the Nazis in general became an imprisonable offense, even before the party was formally banned in September 1933. The communications of the Sudeten Germans with their compatriots in the West and South were cut as border crossings became far more managed, and anti-Czech newspapers, or ones with connections outside the country in general, were shut down. It is important to note that not all Sudeten Germans were pro-Nazi. They might not have been in love with the Czechs, but many saw Hitler for what he was and opposed him, welcoming the police crackdown on the Sudeten Nazis. Plus, all the political enemies of the Nazis in Germany who were smart enough to flee early mostly headed to Prague as their first stop, where they advocated for the government to crush their domestic Nazis before it was too late. Relations, though, momentarily calmed by the end of the summer, mostly as a result of the Czech security apparatus's efforts. The police had done their work well, and by October, the Sudeten branch of the Nazi party disbanded itself, and the government also shut down other nationalist organizations, correctly perceiving that even if the party was disbanded, then the Nazis would simply find front groups to hide out in. And it's at this moment when it seemed like the Czech government had started getting things under control when Konrad Henlein came into the picture. Up to 1933, he had been something of an unassuming figure. He had been a clerk, he had fought on the Italian front in World War I, where he had been wounded and captured, and through the 20s, worked in those athletic societies that acted as fronts for the ultra-right. With the teardown of the Nazi leadership in the Sudetenland, though, new leadership, without as many overt connections leading back to Berlin, was needed. After being approached by the Nazis, on October 1st, he launched the Sudeten German Home Front, which was ostensibly a broad right-wing organization, not even a full political party, that simply sought Sudeten autonomy. There would be no foreign loyalties to this movement, no calls to rupture the Czechoslovak state. The platform would be as nebulous and reasonable as a far-right group could be. This was all a shield against government pressure, though. Henlein's own loyalties were with the larger German nationalist movement, 
and I bring him up now while his stature was still small, because he is going to be the Nazi point man in Czechoslovakia. Officially, everything was fine. Berlin was keeping its hands off the Sudeten Germans, while Prague eased its pressure on foreign German nationals. For the Nazi leadership, a cooling-off period was needed so that the Czech government would relax its, its uh, controls. Until that happened, rebuilding the Sudeten Nazi party was impossible. A byproduct of these strained relations, though, was a move by the Czechoslovak government to commit to an enhanced defense program, which, given the territorial ambitions of most of their neighbors, was downright reasonable. In the case of a conflict with Germany, Czechoslovakia could expect not only attacks all around their lengthy border, but also internal uprisings of Sudetans and maybe even a Hungarian attack to the south. The Czechs predominated the army's officer corps, for the straightforward reason that the German component of the country couldn't be relied upon to fight against their most likely enemy, which again, was reasonable, but did spread further discontent and distrust between the Czechs and Germans. The fact that the production contracts for this uh, military expansion program also went primarily to Czech companies was also commented upon. There was also the extensive fortification program that the army embarked upon starting in the early 30s. The border with Germany might have been long, but it was also partially a byproduct of an arc of mountains that created defined frontiers and made the Czech heartlands a natural fortress. The army sought to enhance those natural defenses with concrete emplacements to, dare I say, check any German advance. The inspiration was clearly drawn from the French Maginot Line, which shielded that country's own frontier with Germany. Big-ass concrete emplacements would house machine guns and cannons of every caliber behind walls too thick for the vast majority of German weapons to overcome. It wouldn't be as continuous a line as the Maginot, but the ground it was built upon was also way more mountainous, so the overall fortifications per mile didn't need to be as great. Plus, all those handy mountains allowed for fortifications to be concentrated in more open areas of the border. The building of the defenses was controversial, not just because of the expense, but because it required appropriations of land to build them, land that the Sudeten Germans lived on and had to give up to the government. But fixed defenses weren't the only thing the Czechs invested in. They got into the tank business as well. Now, this is somewhat overblown because Czech factories would later be utilized by the Germans after the occupation to produce large numbers of Czech tanks to be used by the German army where they picked up good reputations during the early war. For Czechoslovakia itself, the tank program took time to develop. Understandable as that's not an industry you simply hop into and requires a lot of R&D. And the early models were noted for being prone to breakdowns, problems which were eventually ironed out but demonstrated the challenges of starting such a program from scratch. But the Czechs did start building a tank corps, which wound up producing the LT-35 light tank and just barely the LT-38 before the Germans occupied the country. Both were good vehicles for their day, and I'll be covering them with the German army as again, they'll actually be utilized for combat in German service. But despite the modest numbers produced for their home army, only 300 LT-35s being on a hand by the end of the 30s, Czech armor was pound for pound more than a match for the light tanks primarily fielded by Germany. Perhaps even more importantly, the Czechoslovaks purchased a large number of trucks and support vehicles, making the army considerably more mobile and responsive than anything the Germans would encounter in Central Europe. Which I know that you know this army never gets utilized as Czechoslovakia got sold out, but its capabilities, especially the extensive fortifications and motorization element, gave the German leadership pause. 
They knew full well about all these developments thanks to word coming from the Sudeten Germans, and they did not relish the thought of combating such a force while assumedly being exposed to attack from the Western powers. Now, by 1935, the Sudeten Germans were again making their displeasure known. 1934 had been a quiet year, but for them the depression dragged on as Czech companies reaped the benefits of military spending and recovery in the export sector. Henlein decided to try and take advantage of the discontent and created a formal political party, the Sudeten German Party, in April 1935, which was just in time for the May elections, which turned out to be a triumph for Henlein in the far right. Two-thirds of the 1.8 million Sudeten Germans voted for his new party, as they saw right through the smokescreen around its true nature and understood it to be an extension of what was happening in Germany, which they wanted to be a part of. This made the Sudeten German party the largest single one in Czechoslovakia, although this was also because the Czech vote was hopelessly splintered in a myriad of parties. This ushered in a new period of Czech vigilance, as they sensed the danger this time was even greater than in 1933. They couldn't arrest Henlein, he was an elected public figure and hadn't done anything, but the nationalist activities of his party were certainly curbed and monitored. And that's where I'm going to stop off with the Czechs for right now in a dicey spot. Their parliament was now saddled with a sizable German component hostile to the central government that they couldn't get rid of, because this wave of ultra-right German support was much more substantial than in 1933. A full-on crackdown like back then could have provoked civil unrest and cries of discrimination that might have given Hitler the proper cover to get an early Munich crisis, something that the Czech leaders were eager to avoid. My plan with covering Czechoslovakia in the future is to do little checkups, and this time I'm not making a pun, please don't say I'm making a pun, which will correspond to Germany's acts of aggression in the back half of the 30s. Because every time the Germans made a move, Henlein and his ilk just got more emboldened to defy the central government and reveal their true intentions. Big lesson to take away here, the conditions that eventually led to the destruction of Czechoslovakia didn't just show up in 1938. They were sown years beforehand. And last but not least on our little tour is now Poland. Unlike Czechoslovakia, Poland's internal politics were interesting enough even without a foreign nation interfering with them. I left the Poles last season having fallen to a coup led by Joseph Pilsudski, the underground fighter, army man, and father of the nation that had by 1926 arrived to the conclusion that politics could no longer be left in the hands of the politicians. The country faced challenges that the government proved unable to tackle. Even before the Depression, economic development followed, following the devastation of World War I lagged. Millions strained what welfare the government could provide, inflation was out of control, and the nation's myriad of minorities were unhappy. So, Pilsudski seized power in 1926. Unfortunately, he didn't really have a plan, just that the sort of democratic government controlled by the Poles wasn't going to hold the country together. He himself saw his seizure of power as a shakeup more than anything else, which does go some way to explain why he didn't make himself a true dictator and only occasionally held the premiership. People still came to him for direction even when he wasn't holding office, but it wasn't an official arrangement, just a practical one upset him too much, and you might get cooed and all that. He was very particular about hanging on to the Minister of War spot in case of that contingency. Really, Pilsudski played the situation smartly. He was effectively in charge of the nation, but he was the rare sort to look inside himself 
and realize he wasn't the man to run the day-to-day -day affairs. He wanted to keep the parliament around so that they could lend legitimacy and delegated managing them to helpful subordinates. While the veneer of democracy was maintained, in reality, opposition groups on both the left and right understood where the real power was and railed against the sitting government. Light crackdowns got underway, and civil servants and members of the intelligentsia who didn't want to play ball were removed from their posts. This didn't deter the opposition in the March 1920 elections, though. Despite Pilsudski's government putting its thumb onto the electoral scales, the collection of parties that pushed people to support only received a quarter of the vote, with many more voting for the left opposition parties, as well as parties catering to the minorities. The parliament proved continually resistant to Pilsudski, and his mood by the end of the 20s turned dark, which also corresponded with the decline in his health. Now, initially, one of the great successes of the Pilsudski government was turning the economy around. Thanks to foreign credit, the currency was stabilized. The British Great Strike of 1926 sent coal prices upward, meaning that exports brought in a bit more money that could be reinvested for at least a brief window. People started moving to the cities to staff additional factories that were being set up. Overall trends were good. But you probably heard foreign credit and correctly guessed what would happen next. The depression hit and the foreign credit dried up. The Polish government resorted to budget cuts in order to keep its currency stable, preferring, like so many other places, that such stability was a more important objective than staving off mass unemployment. Polish goods simply became too expensive for foreign buyers, a condition that wouldn't start reversing until 1935. The Polish consumer market simply wasn't strong enough to support the expanded factories, and a full quarter of the workforce found itself unemployed. And with austerity being the rule, the welfare system carefully set up during the mid-20s ceased to function. This did not help a confused political situation, as everybody became angry and desperate. It also didn't help that by 1929, there still wasn't a new constitution in place since the 1926 coup, and it wasn't like the old one was being adhered to. By the start of 1930, Pilsudski had abandoned his earlier faith that a democratic resolution could be worked out. The parliament was simply too unruly for his people to manage. On March 29, 1930, Pilsudski installed yet another one of his cronies as prime minister. The parliament, which had been hounding his prior appointments into early resignations, demanded that he dissolve parliament and call new elections, which they assumed would be even more embarrassing for the old man than the 1928 ones had been. Pilsudski himself wanted fresh elections, but wanted to get his ducks in a row first. He used his own personal interpretations of the borderline defunct constitution to prevent the parliament from reassembling, only dissolving that body in August and declaring elections for, no for November. The background events of this election would be dramatic, as starting on September 9th and running into mid-October, thousands of opposition figures, including 64 members of parliament, were arrested. This became known as the Brest Affair, as many of the big names were hauled off to the fortress located in the city of Brest, in what was then eastern Poland, and today is western Belarus, and denied outside contact. Between this new and much more extensive crackdown and the Great Depression, the opposition was thrown into disarray just a month before the election. Then there was the issue of Ukrainian nationalists, which I'll cover in a smidge more detail in just a second. Long story short, they had taken a terrorist attacks, which allowed the government to point to an actual danger to the state and paint the opposition as sympathetic to those terrorists. And during the actual election, the government intervened 
much more directly in validating opposition votes and securing a pro-government bloc with 47% of the vote, which still wasn't great given how much effort they put into controlling the outcome, and it really did speak to how weak the state's reach was, uh, even when acting in such an authoritarian manner. But the government was able to arrange the support of groups outside its approved lists in order to get a solid majority in parliament. Now, though, at his moment of greatest triumph, Pilsudski stepped back. His health was failing, and he let even the big issues of the day be handled by his subordinates. It was in the new appointments, though, that he still showed his influence. After the November elections, the composition of the government changed, and the ministries were largely placed in control of uniformed army officers, loyal, of course, to Pilsudski. Unfortunately, they were also overwhelmingly incompetent to their assigned tasks, usually having no experience in the ministries they were put in charge of. But they weren't there to make the government run smoothly. They were there to maintain power. And in March 1932, the government gave itself the power to issue laws by decree. Crackdowns continued, reaching university professors, 50 of whom in Warsaw were sacked in one go for speaking out against the regime. As you might imagine, none of this lent itself to success in governance, and existing problems grew worse. By 1935, the unemployment rate reached a startling high of 40%, and the government's rank-and-file staff grew demoralized at the irresponsible leaders they had to serve every day. And being military men, moreover, military men close to Baselsky, these ministers fell back on their instinctual chain of command, and that meant going to Bilsudski for orders. However, the old general was by this time ensconced on his estate, suffering from the stomach and liver cancers that would kill him. He simply wasn't accessible enough to be a major force in the affairs of state, and so many decisions simply lingered. Then there was the matter of national defense. Pilsudski and his close officers were conservative in outlook and believed that the next conflict would be decided by cavalry in the same vein of the Russo-Polish War of 1920. The standard infantry and cavalry arms were maintained at the expense of specialist branches. Motorization was held in low regard, as were engineers. Even after experiencing trench warfare firsthand, they thought that constructed field works would be a non-factor. Granted, Poland obviously didn't have the money to support a first-class army, but delays in its development in the first half of the 30s left the military in a dangerous spot by the end of the decade when I go into greater detail on that front. And with Pilsudski's health declining rapidly, his inner circle acted in 1935 to ensure their conservative government would go on. On April 23rd, they forced through a new constitution by a simple majority in parliament, ignoring a standing law that such a thing would require two-thirds approval. The kicker of the new constitution was that the office of president, heretofore not that influential, would have the power to issue laws by decree and veto the parliament. The president would also appoint the prime minister and the army's commander-in-chief. The cherry on top was that the office's terms would be set for seven years, and the selection of a new president would be via a popular vote. A vote that would be between a candidate of the outgoing president's selection versus one nominated by the parliament which, yeah, was just terrible. But it didn't matter. The sitting president was one Ignacy Mosichki, who had held that spot since the 1926 coup and was a moderate civilian associate of Pilsudski's. And he'd hold that presidency all the way until the German invasion in 1939, when he'd flee to Romania. There simply wouldn't be a test to the presidential selection process. And because Pilsudski died in May 1935, shortly after the new constitution was implemented, 
Masichki was forced to strike up an alliance with Pilsudski's heir on the military side, one Edward Rids Smigley. Their partnership would soon become contentious, as Rids Smigley and the other officers were an imperious lot, while Masichki was a moderate who drew his support from the civilian side of the government. You might wonder why Rids Smigley didn't just follow in Pilsudski's footsteps and seize power. Well, he was smart enough to grasp that his own capabilities as a politician were limited. That, and he knew that he didn't command the same level of support as his old boss. This ensured that their alliance was maintained, as each needed each other to help fend off challenges to the regime outside of their own cliques. While Rid Smigley lacked the stature of Pilsudski, his faction would typically be the most influential, and Poland would be seen as being led by a colonel's government. Now, in going over Polish politics, I've kind of left out all the non-Poles living there during these years. A third of the population wasn't Polish at all, and the various ethnic groups had varying reactions to living in the Polish state during this time. The Germans to the west had initially reacted to the creation of Poland by starting to immigrate out, wanting to stay within German borders. This was done to such an extent that the Weimar government encouraged Germans to stay in the borderland regions of Poland and stick it out as their presence was the key to, to the German argument of revising the borders. They would be anchor people. Most of the migrants to the reduced Reich came from the cities, so most of those who remained lived in rural areas. Unlike the Sudeten Germans, the Polish Germans would remain quiet during the first half of the 30s. They'd maintain their separate language, communities, and culture, but generally didn't cause huge amounts of trouble. Uh, you can be sure that that would change wildly in the second half of the 30s when the Nazi government decides to start messing with the Polish state as hard as it could in the years preceding the invasion. And just because there wasn't outright violence in these German areas didn't mean there weren't resentments. The Poles weren't thrilled about a potential community of fifth columnists on their vulnerable western frontier, and a policy of Polonization was pursued. This served to, one unite the German communities, rural and reduced in number, into a more cohesive community as they came under pressure to change their identities at the behest of a government they didn't identify with. And two, it gave the German government ammunition to plead the case of ethnic Germans in Poland and decry the abuses inflicted on their former countrymen. And this wasn't just the policy of the Nazis either. The Weimar government was very active in advocating a border revision so as to protect these communities. The Polish Germans themselves, multiple times, organized to lodge complaints with the League of Nations over their treatment by the government. Given the disdain the German minority held for their new government, there probably wasn't a whole lot to be done in terms of securing their loyalty, but it is important to note that for later in the season when noise starts to be made about revising its borders, the German case was seen as a legitimate one and not just necessarily a land grab. Now, a far more restive portion of the population were the Ukrainians, concentrated in the nation's southeast. At six million strong, their community played host to the surviving remnants of Ukrainian nationalists, those that had managed to survive after the Russian Civil War. The Ukrainians weren't thrilled about being lumped into Poland, and even less thrilled about the Polonization policies carried out in the east as well as the west. The ethnic tension in the East was also greater from an early date, if only because Polish nationalists coveted their people dominating the regional capital of Lviv, modern-day Lviv. The city was considered the key to controlling western Ukraine, and both Poles and Ukrainians regarded it as integral to their people. For the interwar period, the most influential Ukrainian group was the Ukrainian National Democratic Alliance, 
or the UNDO. This was a moderate political party that preferred autonomy of Ukrainians in Poland so as to guarantee they could manage their own affairs, and also so that they didn't fall prey to the Soviet Union. They didn't terribly like the Polish state, but were prepared to work within it. This approach actually came very close to becoming formal policy after Pilsudski came to power, as he continued to wish for a federated approach to the nation's minorities, and toned down the Polonization campaigns, as well as reached out to the UNDO as a partner. This was complicated, though, by the anger of the nationalists, which had been building all through the 20s, in addition to the despair of Ukrainian youth, who felt that there was no future for themselves in Poland. This anger culminated in January 1929, when the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or the OUN, was founded. And this is where the remove of 90 years might not be enough to avoid evoking the passions of the modern day. And I'm going to address that directly. The OUN were an organization that advocated armed violence against those it singled out as its enemies, which for this moment in the late 20s and early 30s meant the Polish state, but would extend to the Soviet Union as well. The group advocated an independent Ukraine based on its own fascist principles, which were drawn from both Mussolini's Italy and Hitler's Germany. The group from an early date would draw support from both those nations as their agents trained alongside the Ustasi and the VMRO in Italy, while getting financial and intelligence assistance from Germany. As we shall see later in the season and in season three, that relationship with the Axis would only deepen. Here's where it gets complicated for the modern day. Ukraine, the modern nation, has a strong contingent of nationalists, not uncoincidentally concentrated in the western part of the nation that form the part of Poland we're talking about right now. These modern nationalists look back to the OUN as inspirations of national resistance and concernedly embrace their ideology as well. This is made all the more complicated by the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. But on this podcast, one of my guiding principles is I calls them likes I sees them and the OUN threw its lot in with the Germans to achieve its goals. You can try explaining that away. You can say that Germany was using them as disposable pawns, which was entirely true. But they, of their own free will, threw in with the Axis, and so I'm going to condemn the hell out of them and their memory. Their very first actions were to embark on a terror campaign. Symbols of the Polish state were attacked in towns, telegraph and railway lines were sabotaged. Over 60 people were murdered by 1930, a number of whom included Ukrainians marked out as collaborators. Pilsudski responded swiftly and deployed the army into the Ukrainian regions, arresting over 1,800 people. While this angered many, it also created a division between Ukrainians. The UNDO denounced the OUN's terror tactics and threw in with the Poles, which, surprisingly enough, netted them a lot of political concessions. The shaky Polish state didn't want to fight a civil war and instead granted the UNDO and the Ukrainians additional autonomy if they helped in fighting against the OUN. This worked out for a short while, but the greater political crisis of 1934 weakened the state's grasp and the OUN struck out again. This time, they managed to assassinate the Polish Minister of the Interior on June 14, 1934. This set off a new round of crackdowns that ruined what the UNDO had gained and meant for the rest of the decade there would be cycles of violence and crackdowns. Moving on from the Ukrainians, the last minority I'll touch on for Poland is the nation's Jewish community. As I mentioned last season, anti-Semitism ran high in Poland, and by the start of the 30s, 400,000 Jews had already left the country, either for the U.S. or at state encouragement to Palestine. 
There were still some 3.5 million Jews in the country, however, and they had active and vibrant communities, which was to the chagrin of Polish nationalists, who really didn't want them. However, the 30s didn't really have anything new in store for the nation's Jews, mostly on account of the continual crisis the state found itself in. Until September 1939, of course, so let's just say most of the 30s. There were some attempts to strip the Jewish community of some of its holdings and business interests during the Depression, ostensibly to do a little wealth transfer to ethnic Poles, but this wasn't carried out to a large extent. Again, bigger priorities were on deck. It did, though, kind of poison relations between Jews and Poles still more, because Jewish newspapers would decry the misguided attacks on their community by the Poles, which was fair enough, but then mock the incompetence of the Poles in running their affairs and how they had failed their own nation first. Which, hey, probably some lessons in there about nationalism, but it was deliberately provocative and annoyed the Poles to no end. Didn't result in anything up front beyond simmering hatreds, which probably didn't help when the Nazis pitted their victims against each other. And on that ominous note, I'll be bringing this initial miniseries to a close. The Great Depression, first and foremost, unlocked levels of human misery unseen since the last days of World War I, and thoroughly ruined the shaky legitimacy of the international order that had developed since those days, as well as the legitimacy of entire states. Many of the big players in the West managed to cling on, with their political systems largely unchanged, as the resources available to them was enough that the Depression could be suffered through. The smaller states, though, well, as you've heard about for over a month now, they could not marshal the same resources. Already on thin ice before the Depression, states across Central Europe fell prey to political chaos and authoritarianism as politics ceased to function normally on account of problems, problems that simply couldn't be fixed. It must have been a bewildering and terrifying experience to see so many of your neighbors out of work, very possibly starving, and there simply not being anything to do about it. Or the roles were reversed and you were the one destitute, helpless in the face of a global crisis you had no hand in, originating in places of the world you had no knowledge of. Oh yes, people were very angry, and the lashing out would only continue as the 30s wore on. And the big players were not immune themselves. The U.S. would withdraw inside itself, expanding the reach of federal power in a last-ditch effort to save the system from itself. A topic I look forward to covering in the future, but for now we'll move on to the other big player that couldn't sustain itself as it was before the Depression. Germany. Next week is going to mark the start of the big one, folks. One of the cornerstone topics of this entire podcast. An event so mired in conspiracy and corruption that the particulars almost always get lost in the brief retelling it's usually allotted. I'm talking about the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis to power in Germany and the corresponding dissolution of the Weimar Republic. Because the shadow of Hitler is so long, the smaller figures that were the ones who ensured he could make himself dictator often slip away unnoticed. Not this time, though. This time, I'll be shining a light on the broken political system of Germany and will recount the whole sordid affair. Join me next week for the start of that, and as always, thank you very much for listening.